As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Matters of Life and Death. As always, I'm Tim White and I'm joined by my dad, John White. Hi, Dad. Hi, Tim. Um, and this is a really uh, a kind of unexpected follow-on, really, to our last episode, which was all about um, egg freezing. Uh, so, if you haven't listened to that, please do 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 pause this episode and go back and have a listen. But, but in response to our discussion around um, why increasing numbers of women are choosing to freeze their eggs and some of the kind of cultural, social drivers of that, um, incre- including from from Christian women, we've had a, a few interesting emails from listeners talking about how their own experience of this issue or from kind of friends of theirs is, is driven primarily by the the supposed lack of kind of suitable male partners, uh, boyfriends, and ultimately husbands they're finding in church circles. Uh, and, and this coming back to this basic idea, which has been around for a while, but, but that there is a fundamental gender gap in the churches. It's sometimes called that there are more, more significantly more women than men attending church getting stuck in taking their faith seriously and this has had the inevitable but unfortunate consequence that there is a kind of surplus of single women who would like to be married but just simply cannot find suitable partners is this an idea that you've come across before dad yeah absolutely and of course it's not a new idea um it's i think it's something that's been recognized probably for hundreds of years certainly ever since uh i was a a young man it seemed that there was a definite imbalance in the number of committed young women who were uh in church circles uh, involved in christian unions and other christian activities compared with the number of men and uh i mean for instance it it's always been known that um the number of uh, single lady missionaries, uh, people who, cross-cultural missionaries who left uh, the rich countries and went uh, to the resource countries, many of them single women who were often pioneers and did remarkable, remarkable things. But um, it's... Uh, so, so I think it's a reality which has been there for for a long time, and it's a an interesting question as to why that should be. But and I I'm fast forwarding to the present. I'm well aware of of a number of um, 
young Christian women, women in their 20s, 30s, 40s, single, who would love to find a partner, would love to uh, raise a family, um, uh, and yet they simply find it impossible to find uh, someone who they could get married to, who they feel is suitable within the Christian community. Yeah, it's certainly a kind of trope, I would say, of particularly among evangelicals, a kind of discussion for for, for as long as I can remember. Um, I have to say, when often when I hear this discussed, kind of alarm bells ring in the back of my head about how much is this anecdotally true versus being actually true. And so I I think you it's it's one of those things which is almost like taken for granted. In so, but in that sense, people often don't probe into like, have, is there actual data and evidence to suggest that this is more than just anecdotally true? So I did a, a very brief uh, kind of Google search to see what kind of surveys had been done. Um, unfortunately, most of the data does, as often is the case, comes from America. But I think we can probably suggest that here in our context in the UK, there's going to be slightly similar dynamics at play. So so according to the, the well-respected Pew Research Organization, when you ask people um, to kind of state their religion um, by gender... Uh, when you look at evangelical Protestantism, the tradition that we both come from, there is a a slight bias uh, towards women. It's about 55% to 45%. 55% of people who describe themselves as Protestants are women, 45% men. So a slight imbalance, but hardly overwhelming. Um, but actually, I guess the more potent or, or interesting question is not just, that's just about affiliation as, and as people will be familiar with, you know, when you ask people in surveys, what faith you have, um, much larger numbers of people will call themselves Christians than would actually be kind of meaningfully practicing that faith. And a more useful proxy of that would be kind of regular church attendance. So there's been different answers when you look at this question, but again, in the States, when you uh, aggregate some of several studies together, in, again, in evangelical Protestant churches, apparently it suggests that there are approximately, for every 100 women there are attending church, there are about 93 men. So again, a, a noticeable difference. Um, uh, and this is actually similarly across all religious traditions. So another Pew research I looked at said that um, about 40% uh, of women said that they attended a religious service at least once a week in America versus 32% of men. Um, and this is fascinatingly, actually, along all measures of religious commitment, this is replicated globally, too. So um, Pew said that in 54 countries where data was collected on Christians daily prayer habits, Christian women report praying daily more frequently than Christian men by an overall average gap of 10 percentage points. I.e., When you look around 54 different countries around the world and ask people, how often do you pray? How, how do you pray every day on average? there are 10 percentage points lead for women saying yes to men. And in some of those countries, it could be as big as a gap as 25 percentage points. Um, and I think this, it's interesting to me because my instinct is often to be, oh, this is this, this debate about gender gap in church can be kind of a proxy for some other discussions about complementarianism. But actually, I think the evidence is clear that there, it's kind of clear that it's not simply anecdotal. There is definitely more women coming to church than men, more women taking their faith seriously than men in terms of kind of personal spirituality and discipleship as well. Although the gap may not be as vast as is sometimes portrayed. 
Yeah, and I, I think that's true. I mean, I would just put a huge um, question mark about American statistics compared to European statistics because, I mean, as is well known, religiosity in the States is enormous compared to the secular Europe. And so 33% of men attending church is laughable, isn't it? I mean, here, you know, regular church attenders would be, what, 5%? Or, I mean, yeah, it's tiny. Like so, so, you know, whereas social church going is still in large swathes of middle America, this is still a... Mm. You know. There was some. There was one survey I found on the UK, um, which said across. This is across all churches and denominations. On average, um, this was at church attendance just w- once a month rather than once a week. Uh, it was four point four percent of male adults in Great Britain attended church once a month, while five point two percent of women, which might seem obviously small, but if you look at them, the two numbers in comparison, that means that you know there's about a quarter more more women than men, which. They yeah, say so, if you across the population, that amounts to about half a million more women than men in the church. This is in the UK. Yes. And, and I think also if you just sort of draw back and you say, what aspect is it of uh, a living Christian faith which attract men and women? I I think, again, this is anecdotal, but I think more women are are attracted to the contemplative prayerful um aspects of of christianity i mean for instance i'm just thinking of uh, at the church i go to there is a regular quiet day which is advertised as a day of contemplative prayer for and it's made open to the church congregation at all and it is overwhelmingly women i mean almost eight to one something like that in terms of women versus men who choose to go on a contemplative on a day of contemplative and quiet prayer. So, so I think, I think often men are drawn by the, the being part of a, a team, being part of a group. Um, and, and, and often by, uh, by a kind of activism, the activism of, of, of church engagement you know generalizations but i i I think there this is and probably you could trace that back couldn't you to back to centuries to um to just differences and again what the root of these differences are I, i i'm not um by any means confident that i know but it whatever the reasons are i i think there is a um uh, there are differences. Actually, just I'm going to offer slightly a tangent. Uh, as you know, I've recently published a book on friendship, and as a result of that, I did a study uh, just looking at friendship, you know, through the Bible. And one of the things that really struck me is that uh, in when Jesus says, "You know, you are my friends," uh, he says that to the disciples. Um, all males, all gathered in the upper room, as far as we know, the females weren't there. And uh, and they then proceed to betray his friendship in a spectacular, spectacular way, uh, literally within hours. Uh, I mean, when it's framed in the Old Testament understanding of friendship, it's all about kind of covenant loyalty. And a friend is one who prepares to sacrifice greater love, has no one than to give their life 
for their friends. And yet all the men turn tail and run. And yet there is a subversive tale within the Gospels, and that is that Jesus does have loyal friends, and they're all the women. It's the women who turn up. It's it's the women who go to the cross and take the risk of being associated with him. It's the women who uh, work out where he is buried. It's the women who prepare spices. It's on, on the Holy Saturday. It's the women who go to the grave before dawn. It's the women who are witnesses to the resurrection. So there's a kind of subversive plot that who are Jesus's loyal friends? And after it's not the men, uh, it's a whole group of women. And, uh, you know, so there is the fact that there are gender differences is already uh, being spelt out uh, in in the New Testament. And I think this points to something that's a really interesting paradox, tension potentially in kind of church history, which is that, you know, Christianity is a faith started by a man, Jesus, uh, and his 12 male disciples, and has been disproportionately led by but you know men in most traditions exclusively reserved kind of church leadership for men for for most of church history and yet for centuries the the core people who actually practice the faith um who keep these churches going through their voluntary service have been women and so there's this fascinating tension where you, if you had to predict, you would have predicted that Christianity would become a a, a, a faith built in the image of the men who le- led, started, and, and lead it. And yet, the argument sometimes goes, "Well, there's this uh, this gender gap. That's because the church has become too feminized." And and I guess the question I'm interested in is, okay, we have a gender gap. We have a church that is disproportionately female. Whose fault is that, or is it anyone's fault? Is this because the women like those first disciples are just better at being Christians are just better at institutionally better at following Jesus and taking risks and making sacrifices and responding to the call. Or is it actually the men would like to be Christians would like to be part of church, but actually church has become too feminized and therefore the men are kind of put off. And, you know, this is where you often hear the kind of the kind of usual tropes about, you know, we need more preaching about old Testament heroes or, you know, we de- we need different to sing different songs that aren't kind of Jesus is my boyfriend, but are kind of like manly fighting songs about <laughs> onward Christian soldiers. And, you know, you even read people saying, you know, well, well, look, you know, male leadership in the church is all about wearing dresses and silly hats and and, and special pectoral crosses. And it, it, it's all deeply emasculating. Um and and you know we shouldn't be surprised that men don't turn up when to turn up you know to be a christian that that all the all the kind of role models they see are of these kind of soft-handed um uh you know effeminate pretty boys singing about how jesus is their boyfriend (laughs) and this is as you can tell this is a line of argument that i find kind of unpersuasive but i think you have to acknowledge that that is I mean, there are entire ministries, there are entire ministries here in the UK and even more in the States dedicated to this premise that churches need to be taught how to become, be more kind of male friendly, be more, um, less emotional, more rugged and individualistic and um, masculine. I mean, what do you, what do you make of that? <laughs> it's fascinating, isn't it? I mean, these, these are very complex cultural trends. I mean, you have to acknowledge the the extraordinary popularity of figures like Jordan Peterson, uh, mm. you know, not, not in a directly Christian 
context, but nonetheless, he's been latched on by many mm. people on the kind of Christian right, uh, who is basically uh, promoting this idea, isn't it, of the, the feminization of the culture and the need for men to rediscover their own identity, to take responsibility, to um, mm. uh, and so on. Um, I... I I find myself I do think there is something in this in this thesis that that Christianity has become um masculinized. I mean I think back to my own roots you know that my, my formative period as a young Christian was definitely in the student period in my first few years which is when my own Christian faith came alive and I was very, very influenced by images of it was it was about total discipleship. It was about sacrifice. Um, Operation Mobilization had recently started. George Verwa used to give these fiery talks about um, about the need for total commitment and sacrifice. I, I can remember I was very influenced by. Um, the martyr, the missionary martyr, Jim Elliot, who was martyred uh, in Latin America and reaching out to Amazonian tribes. And there was this great quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And, and the idea that that might read to martyrdom was something that actually I found very attractive. It was, some, it was a compelling vision of, of, of sacrificial living. I was also very influenced by the whole stories that were emerging from the persecuted church in in Eastern Europe. And uh, again, there were there were remarkable stories of martyrdom, of torture, of 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 Christian faithfulness under extreme persecution, which which drew me as far from it repelling me and thinking, yuck, isn't that terrible? There was something about this extraordinary a sacrificial uh, aspects to Christianity, which, which drew me, and was a lot to do with what you know of my involvement. I spent a whole summer with an organisation supporting the underground church. I I did other things with Operation Mobilisation, um, and when I compare that with um, the kind of presentation often the way that uh, Christianity is presented today, it often seems that it is a kind of, you know, you're feeling bored and depressed, and and, and if you come to Christ, you'll find meaning and purpose, and you'll find safety and security. And um, there's a famous quote, isn't there, from Bornhofer, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. (laughs) And Bonhoeffer often talked about cheap grace that was not sacrificial, the cheap grace that that took all the nice things mm. uh, of Christianity and which didn't really uh, resonate with the sacrificial. So I I think I don't want to overstate the gender differences. You know, I know that there are and there were women who were equally drawn by that narrative of sacrifice and 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 martyrdom and so on but i think there is something about i think it, it's more likely that 
that kind is to appeal to to male psychology and i i think that if if the appeal of of evangelical christianity today is largely about this is where you'll find your needs met you know this is where you'll find purpose and meaning i think there are an awful lot of young men out there saying but i just don't need that i'm not needy i'm not got mental health issues i'm not i'm really enjoying my life i'm i'm you know why on earth what is there about christianity that attracts me hmm Before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast, I've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this Easter. As you know, N.T. Wright is without doubt one of the greatest Christian thinkers and apologists of our time. And some of Tom Wright's answers to questions about Jesus' death, resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking. That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help us keep these resources and podcasts like Ask N.T. Write Anything and Unbelievable Going Strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. That's premierinsight.org forward slash matters of life and death. Thank you. You're listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. I think there's a lot to agree with there. I think I certainly agree that our a lot of our language and the way we think about Christianity and faith has become kind of therapeuticized to mangle a word that we kind of, which is simply a reflection of how we talk about all of life right now, which is in this kind of therapeutic mindset of, you know, everyone is is feeling anxious and is feeling stressed and is struggling with their mental health and is lonely and and therefore we we look at everything through the frame of how is it going to bring that kind of inner sense of peace and calm and security and wholeness that we're searching for which is obviously a legitimate and true strand of what the gospel is about but i think can certainly be alienating or or make evangelism challenging when people don't buy into this idea that they're kind of you know there's a nagging ache in them inside that nothing else seems to fill which is not the experience of a lot of people i guess i had questions about whether we're whether gendering that experience is that helpful, whether I think there are just as many men and women in equal numbers who would feel un, that kind of Christianity is unappealing because they don't have a sense of deep insecurity they need uh, fixing. I think my concerns around some of the the kind of language about how do we get men back into the church and have we lost a sense of rugged adventure and risk and sacrifice is you know, I'm all for, you know, kind of strong Christus Victor theology or, you know, calls to sacrifice and, and, and that kind of stuff. I think we could all benefit from that in the church. But I think when you read 
what I struggle with when I read some of these, you know, the blogs and the kind of guide guidance and training about how to get men back into church. It's all about things like, you know, uh, uh, men struggle to sit still and listen to sermons. So make sure you have short kind of eight minute sermons that don't have too much, you know, wishy washy language and deep theology or, you know, men don't really want to come to social events. So, you know, don't don't you know, you need to. um you know, men men aren't good at small talk and they don't want to be like stuck in a room talking to people. So, you know, you've got to make sure you go out there. And and I guess not only do I find this stuff alienating because it doesn't speak to my own experience as a man, as a Christian man, but I also just find it profoundly patronizing because it basically says that men are kind of quite kind of shallow, 2D, <laughs> stupid, uh, kind of loners. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of these stereotypes have germs of truth. But fundamentally, the imp- the instinct is, you know, men aren't coming to church. That must be the women who are already in church's fault, rather than what is it? Some is there anything the men aren't doing right? Is it is it actually that me- the men might have abiding uh, sins and temptations that are leading them to to find it difficult to respond to the call of Christ? But no, the solution is this, the answer is always no, no. Men are great as they are. Men are just fine. And it's the women who are running the church that need to change everything they're doing to make to try and get men into into the door. And I just think it paints this this incredibly kind of pastiche, kind of shallow idea that that of ma- what masculinity is. Um, yeah, as well no, as I... uh, yeah, selling women short as well because actually yeah. a lot of the you know a lot of women will enjoy being called to sacrifice for Jesus and to grab, stand up for justice and you know seeing the gospel as an adventure and and all this stuff. I just I'm not convinced that kind of entrenching the gendered silos is a helpful solution to the kind of gender gap. No, I I, I accept that, um, and and I don't want to overstate it. I, I, just two things occur to me. One is there is a real problem i think in the people who are being ordained or or going for church leadership in whatever evangelical denomination because i don't think they are representative of um the men in the community um because i you know i i think again and it would be interesting to try and unpack, unpack that why but I, I think the job of a church leader, certainly as it here it is here in the UK and, and probably many places across the world, you know, what what is the employment? What do you do when you're a church leader? Uh, is is one that is, I, I think, a, a great deal of men find unattractive. Um, you know, why, why would I want to spend my life doing that? Um, basically giving talks and being pastoral, providing pastoral support. Um, and, and so I, I feel there's a disconnect between the men who do all the preaching and the sort of lives they lead in the Christian bubble versus, it's not just the men, of course, but, it, but it, you know, they are the role models. So, so I think, I think that's, that's one issue. But I, I think I just something else that has occurred to me, and that is I've noticed over the years that men, when men are in the presence of women, there's a tendency for a lot of men just to feel 
their behaviour is different from when they're alone in an all-male group. I'm sure the same is true to some extent with all female groups, but for obvious reasons I haven't observed that. But what I have observed with men is that, and interestingly, years ago, I started running some male-only quiet days, almost as a bit of an experiment. You know, why did the men not go to the the female quiet days? What had tended to happen is that the female quiet days were very touchy-feely with lots of arts and crafts and candles and express your feelings here hmm. on this on this piece of paper. Um, when we when we did men only, it was quite different. First, the, the quality of the food deteriorated dramatically. It was sort of sandwiches from Tesco's as opposed to um, <laughs> really nice food. But second, rather to my surprise, the men really wanted to share their own struggles, honestly, with other men. They wanted to talk about temptations and frustrations and their own spiritual life and share it man to man in a in a in a remarkably open way which i rather surprised me but um so but it was something about this was an all-male space and i don't know whether that was atypical maybe it was maybe you know i can't generalize to everyone else but it it did strike me that uh, there was something here about all-male groups and and basically within the church as a whole all male groups are regarded as inappropriate antediluvian again that word patriarchal hmm. you know we should do everything together yeah this is actually something i've been thinking quite a lot about over the last few years because um uh, over my um my wife has been studying uh, at a, a theological college and there's kind of, there's a, a group for the spouses of students, which is ostensibly gender neutral, but in reality for 95% of the time I've been there, um, it's, it's been an exclusively women group plus me. And so I've spent more time as the sole man in an otherwise entirely female group over the last few years than, than I ever have before. And it's been really, it's a really interesting experience. Um, I mean, primarily there's, there's truth in what you say in that, you know, there, I'm obviously not the only husband in the college, but uh, almost all of the other men have very little interest in attending a group in which they are a massive minority. Um, And so sometimes they come once or twice at the start of year and then they stop (laughs) coming. This is not for me. (laughs) It's certainly true that you observe the significances of kind of gender differences, you know, and when, when they do the kind of annual away day, um, there's often a bit of head scratching about what to do about Tim. Is is he going to want a journal, <laughs> which is the kind of, how do we, the giddy bag that they give to everyone else and, and, uh, and a kind of um, inspirational fridge magnet Bible verse, or, or should we, you know, if, should we give him what we're giving everyone else because that would be discri- dis- discriminatory not Absolutely. to, or should we actually try and come up with a more male-friendly uh, gift? Give him um, a book about footballers. But but what is fascinating to me is is one is that once you push past that initial awkwardness about oh my gosh I'm the only man here, it very quickly becomes unimportant. And actually, what we have in common, we're all married to people who are training for ministry and doing theological study. 
and we're all Christians and we're all evangelicals living in the same town, like becomes more important. But also what is fascinating is that for the women, it's not an unusual experience. Every single woman there has spent a lot of her life as the only woman in a male only room, often in a work context, but also in church, in church circles as well part of a PCC or, you know, the only woman, you know, doing the admin in an in office or whatever like that. And there's something about how there's still a kind of male defaultedness to a lot of the circles we move in, including church and I think work circles. And so women just by come to expect that there will be plenty of occasions when, because this is a male default space, I am the only woman here, but I obviously can't avoid these spaces I have to, and they have to make their peace with being them. And I think it's fascinating to me that men don't have that experience. There's a lot of men who go their entire life and they've never been the only man in a room full of women. And so when they are thrown into that situation, they find it profoundly uncomfortable and often, frankly, flake out and say, no, I can't deal with this. It's just too awkward. and we sit back and say, mm, isn't this interesting? Oh, how do we change things? When actually this is an experience that women have had to had to go through countless times and find ways of kind of making their peace with being the only women in, in a certain space. So I, I just yeah. again, I think this, it's interesting how we, even in how we do, do this conversation, there's a still a lot of, lot, of, lot of unquestioned presumptions about why certain things can or should be, should be gendered and whether we lean into that or whether we actually want to challenge the fact that men don't like being in a room full of women. Is that, is that something we want to kind of coddle and say, yeah, that's fine. Let's find more male only spaces for you. Or is that something we want to say, actually, is that a healthy response or, you know, are we actually supposed to be called as Christians to be living our life as believers in, in mixed gender community? Yeah. And very good questions. And um, I don't have a, a clear answer but I, I can see what you're saying just to come back we ought to finish soon but just to come back to this question of single women who find mm. for whatever reason they can't find a partner within the church I've noticed a very significant rise in the use of Christian dating apps Definitely. Um, and know of people who found uh, their Christian other half um, through a dating app and I, I think again that's a kind of fascinating development um mm. what do you think about that i mean if you were if you were single and had not <laughs> met your wife and uh would you be going on a christian dating app good question um i mean anecdotally yes it's very common i would say approaching but by the time you get to kind of my age so 30s you know i think of the people i know now who are single or kind of recently getting together as Christians, probably almost more of them than not met on apps. I think because the kind of main venue for meeting would be kind of university days and um, kind of church. And if you've been in the same church for 10 years and not met, not met a husband, um, I think it's more common than not that people start to turn to the apps. Um, I think I would certainly consider it. I think I have a kind of natural antipathy towards the idea of kind of manufacturing something like that and have a kind of vague sense that it's you know relationships should be a bit more organic but actually when you drill into that it's a bit silly because ultimately you know everyone you meet you initially meet them as a kind of stranger and you know 
yeah so i don't have any kind of principled objection to using an app i I know lots of people who have got wonderful relationships and marriages and families as a result of christian connection or salt i believe is the one the kids are using these days um i think i think it's certainly if i was on if i was on the apps and actively looking for a partner i would be some questions i'd want to ask myself about how do you kind of cultivate the right attitude to that approach and and you know ensure that you know we're not idolizing relationships or kind of putting too much effort into into finding a partner above everything else in our kind of our life Um, as good as getting married is it's not the only thing and as you know we've mentioned before on this part as i'm sure about the kind of the need for christians to kind of re-engage with the virtues of singleness and i also think there's something specific about apps different to how um kind of old-fashioned analog dating is that almost by definition when you're on the apps you are constantly starting new conversations with different people um it's not expected that you that you would be kind of exclusively exploring relationship with one person at a time until you actually have done several kind of in-person dates and both people kind of agree yes we're gonna we're going to focus on seeing if this is this is there's something here. Oh, and I so wasn't I think aware of that. Is that is that actually? Yeah. So so the way it normally works oh, is etiquette. that the etiquette, as far as I understand, I'm not an expert. <laughs> I, I mean, dating apps kind of became a thing after I got married. So uh, I'm very much not an expert. My understanding is is that you know you have a profile, you're you're exploring, you're swiping around. When you and another person see each other's profile and kind of agree that yes, you're interested, that then you can start direct messaging them, and you might you don't go immediately to right let's meet next tuesday evening at this bar and have a drink the the standard premise is that we'll we'll just start chatting it's just like texting and so you will be texting this person seeing is there any chemistry do we have stuff in common you know shooting the breeze testing out is there a connection here but there's absolutely no expectation that you wouldn't simultaneously be also messaging other people Um, and that's not kind of and something wrong with that um, and in fact, even to the point where you might, it's again, totally normal to be meeting up in person and having a, a, an initial second date with this person. And the next week, you've got a date plan with someone else. And again, I don't think in principle, that's awful. But I just think there is a tension there about how do we go, you know, go through this process with, in, with a sense of kind of integrity and treating people carefully, and respectfully, and making sure that we're not kind of commodifying the experience of dating. Um, but I appreciate yeah. that's an, an easy thing for me, you know, 10 years married this really year to say yeah, yeah, to people is, in their late 20s or 30s who are starting to wonder if they're ever going to kind of meet the right person. Well, fascinating. Um, I, I, I think we'd be very interested in feedback, wouldn't we, if mm. um, any more comments about would you ever use a dating app? What are the positives, negatives? Um, and I'd really like to come back in a future episode to some of the deeper issues about patriarchy, the mm. role of men. Uh, is it true, for instance, that the workplace is becoming, quotes, feminized, that feminine mm. characteristics are now much more sought than male, what are traditionally male roles? And, and one, just briefly, one of the things that you mentioned in passing Jordan Peterson, and I think it's it's probably no coincidence that at the same time there is a kind of conversation underway in the church about, you know, we've lost touch with men. 
it's too, the church, our culture is too feminized and it's off-putting. There is exactly the same conversation happening in the secular world and figures like Jordan Peterson, who are incredibly, have kind of gathered an army of disaffected young men who feel alienated from their societies, who feel like it's a female-dominated world that I don't fit in, that I don't understand, that I can't navigate, and I'm bitter and angry about this. Um, and so I would just think, just draw attention to the fact, it's an interesting coincidence that this same kind of psychological, social, cultural moment is happening in both the secular world and the church world. But I think it's a really interesting thing about, you know, sometimes called the men's rights movement, this kind of backlash to the kind of presumption that the feminist revolution of the 1960s was an obvious good thing. Um, um, and yeah, I think it's a really interesting topic because there's a lot of Christians who are interested in this idea and exploring, you know, you know, actually is modern society bad for men from um, it, it can, can the kind of feminist revolution and the way it's kind of completely overturned our social constructions be harmonized with a kind of Christian account of gender difference. So yeah looking forward to that conversation in the future podcast great stuff well i think we should draw it up draw stumps now but um look forward to chatting again yeah um thanks everyone for listening as you said we're we're very interested in 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 your feedback um particularly on some of the stuff we've been talking about today um and again bigger conversation we had with our egg freezing and and um children and childbirth and families in our in our confusing modern world so please do get in touch you can email molad m-o-l-a-d at premier.org.uk um, uh, and you can also contact me on twitter or x whatever you like to call it i'm at t-s-y-a-t-t t-s-w-y-a-t-t um, but please do keep your questions coming in and thanks to to john who's um no we didn't actually mention that did i i'll cut that out so please do keep your questions coming in and we'll be back next week with another episode. But until then, bye-bye. You've been listening to Matters of Life and Death, a podcast from Premier Unbelievable. Unbelievable.